sometimes uh, the scriptures can feel really distant from us. Maybe you have uh, heard from a friend or even said yourself something along the lines of, why is this ancient book that's written in a different culture and different languages of any significance to me today, right? Uh, they can just feel like the topics are a little uh, just separated from where we are today. Um, we've been going through Galatians uh, the last few weeks, and it'd be really easy for us to consider Galatians to be one of those books, right? We've uh, subtitled our, our study Galatians, uh, the gospel is for everybody, uh, but we could have subtitled it something like this. We could have said Galatians, a Pauline epistle about the soteriological significance of Jewish ethnic identity markers such as circumcision, dietary restrictions, and holy day observances, right? Please invite your friends. It's going to be lots of fun. Um, you know, obviously this doesn't feel too connected to where we live and what we're dealing with. And even as we've talked about these things, we talked a lot about the law of Moses and the promise of Abraham and um, circumcision and Sabbath and kosher law and all these things that really can feel separated. Hopefully each week we bring it a little bit around to normal, practical life, but it can feel distant. But Paul does this amazing thing at the end of Galatians, and he does it in most of his letters, that Paul starts to go into practical mode. He knows that he has to finish with stuff they can take away. So after all this exposition and allegorical interpretation of Hagar and Sarah and all these other things that happens in Galatians, the last chapter of Galatians that we're going to cover today is kind of like a grandfather imparting wisdom on his grandkids. Paul goes through and much like the Proverbs, he just gives little snippets, little pieces of life advice of how they can take what they've learned in this book about God's work in the world and then apply that to their everyday life. And so it's my hope that today we can sit with Paul and just hear those things. I'm going to read a little bit and then I'll sort of hopefully contextualize a little bit to our world and then we'll read a little bit more. And through it all, just try to hear Paul giving you advice about how to process your everyday life considering everything that we've learned in Galatians 1 through 5 about how God is trying to reach everyone in the world. First uh, piece of advice, Galatians 6, 1 through 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. All right. So Paul immediately starts with a question they have to deal with. What do you do, how do you deal with people you disagree with or even bad people? Right? How, how do you respond to people who are doing evil things? And in this book, Paul has talked about these people who are forcing circumcision on them. And how they're just they're wrong and they're not nice and all these kinds of things. So Paul says, how do you deal with it? Uh, in our world, the way we deal with it is we scream at people, okay? If you have not noticed, our internet world has become an honor-shame culture where we just yell at people who we think are wrong. So if we see something on the news we don't like, we run over to Facebook and we type up a big post about how they're an idiot and they're terrible, right? And we yell about it. And if somebody disagrees with us in the comment section, we yell at them for disagreeing with us. 
Um, if you if you don't, I mean, if there's any questions, go to any comment section on any article. You could write an article that says puppies are cute, and someone in the comment section will yell at you about how insensitive you are to people who suffer with allergies, right? How terrible. How you're not considering people. They're not cute. They're killers. Imagine if you were asphyxiating yourself with puppy fur, right? Someone will get mad about something. And so this is the way we deal with things in our culture. When we don't like it, we just yell at people and we blast them verbally. And Paul gives us a really different way to go about these things. He says, that's not, that's not my approach. Paul says, when you have someone who is doing sinful things, recognize that you are dealing with someone who is trapped. Our general moral climate right now is to be incensed and convinced that it's totally obvious that what they're doing is wrong. And they're clearly just so evil that they're doing what's wrong because they're a maniacal villain that twists their mustache and is like, ha, 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 I want to ruin, ruin the world. Sometimes the people you disagree with really are just, they don't know any better. Maybe they're dumb, but, you know, let's not be too harsh on people for their intelligence. Maybe they don't have the experience you have. Maybe they haven't been educated, or maybe they just grew up and have a different perspective. Paul says that when you deal with someone who is stuck in sin, you are dealing with someone who has been trapped. Paul uses this language often. He uses it of himself. In Romans, he says, when I try to do the things I know that are right, I end up doing the things that are wrong. And the things that I know are wrong are the things that I end up doing. And no matter how, I, how hard I try, I always catch myself doing stuff I shouldn't be doing. And Paul says that's the way human beings are. We mess up. And so if you have somebody who you disagree with who's doing something you think is evil, recognize that they may be trapped by that evil just as much as you are when you do something that you don't want to do. And then he means this metaphor of be careful and watch yourself. Because the whole time that you're sitting here pointing at somebody else drowning, you are standing on thin ice yourself. There may be any moment where the things that you're criticizing are the things that you yourself will do. Uh, to bring this around to a lighter kind of perspective, we do this all the time when we become parents, right? We grow up and we're like, mom and dad did this and I am never going to do that. And then you have children, and you do that thing that you said you were never going to do. A little more difficultly, um, we see this a lot in children that grow up around addiction or children that grow up around abuse. They hate it, and they're so mad about their parents being stuck in that. And it's just so heartbreaking when you find someone who grew up in an alcoholic family that themselves starts to succumb to alcoholism, Right. And they're just so mad. They're like, I hated the way mom and dad did that, and now I'm doing that. How does that happen? And Paul says, because sin is a trap. And the second you start gloating or the second you start ripping into somebody else about their sin, what you're ultimately doing is getting ready for your own fall. And so you got to be cautious. So the question becomes, um, how do you deal with bad people? And Paul says, you restore them gently. You try to find peace with them. You try to bring them along kindly. Now let's hit the rubber, let's hit the rubber to the road real quick, okay? You're on Facebook and your um, your uncle says something really racist, right? How do you deal with them? 
you are being trained by your world to just put them on blast and just rip into them and just, you know, social media the guts out of them, right? And Paul says, when you have someone you have a problem with and who's sinning against you, try to restore them gently. Righteous indignation might be righteous, but it often doesn't create peace. Right? And we've got to ask, do we want to live in a world that's burning down from all the justice that we've just sprayed? Or do we want to live in a world where we can bring people along gently so that they are convicted that they are wrong? Have you found many people that when you scream at them go, oh, you're right, I should change my opinion. Right? Does that ever work? But there's this amazing thing when you gently say, that's not the way to do it. Let me show you a different way. I really think that's, that's kind of offensive. Can we talk about like a better way to be? And you restore gently. Paul says that, that you can create better relationships. Now, there's one caveat I should put here. Paul isn't always the best practicer of this, right? Remember last week we read the go circumcise or go uh, castrate yourselves passage, right? Paul isn't always the best gentle restorer. So, you know, maybe there are some times to be a little upset. But Paul here is saying when we're doing our best, when we live in the spirit, we restore people gently instead of just screaming at them. All right, I'm going to have to go faster. That was only two verses. Galatians 6, 3 through 5. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Um, this is another thing we deal with in our world. We live in a world of envy. Okay? And I know I talk about the computer stuff a lot, but we spend a lot of time in our screens, right? If some of you are great and you have learned not to use your phone all the time, I'm sorry my sermons do not apply as well to you. But I think most of us walk around doing this all day, right? We live in a world that creates social media envy. We brag about it. Um, have an have a ad here. We're going to play a 30-second ad, not because we endorse the company, but it shows us exactly the way that we act about envy on social media. I love those commercials. You like her, but you'd like her more if you made more money than she did, right? And you know, this, this, this image of this woman looking through this feed and like this combination of, wow, that looks really great. And wow, I hate her guts, right? This is something that many of us do because we've become stuck in a comparison thing. Um, if you are kind of finished parenting or at the end of it, this is a real problem, I think, particularly for our younger parents because Pinterest has made parenting terrible. Right? You do a birthday party for your kid, and you're like, oh, I put a lot of effort in. I hope they had a good party. And then you look on Pinterest at the other parties. You're like, my party was terrible. Right? Because it's all cute and perfect and put together, and they did little things with popsicle sticks or whatever. I don't know. This is apparently a real concern for people, though, because we're constantly looking at other people's lives, and we're trying to figure out if we're doing better or worse than they're doing. And Paul says, if you go about your spiritual life constantly figuring out if you're doing better or worse than someone else, it is not going to go well for you. 
He says one of the problems that happens when you do that is you get arrogant. You're like, oh, I'm doing a better job than they are, right? And he's dealing, particularly in this context, with these people who are like, well, I was circumcised on the eighth day as a young Jewish man, and you're just a Gentile who's not circumcised. I'm clearly spiritually doing better than you. And Paul's like, no, that is not the way we operate. Do not be constantly comparing yourself to other people. Because it will always cause death in your life. It will cause sadness and depression and frustration. And if it doesn't, it's going to create arrogance and puffed up nastiness. And so he says, just stop doing it. There's this idea that God gives you the right load to carry. And when you start carrying on the load of trying to be better than your friend Beatrice or something like that, you're, you're just adding too much to your plate. And so be willing to be happy with dealing with your issues. Discern for yourself what God is asking you for in your spiritual life. Say, you know what? This year, it will be a huge thing if I get really good about daily prayer that helps me to, uh, every night I'm going to just daily pray about my day and the things that I need from God. If that's where you're at and you feel that's what God's laid on your heart, then Open it up your Bible and be like, well, this guy used to pray five times a day. I'm so garbage because I don't do it five times a day. No, that is not the game that you are in. Take the burden that God has put on you and live that out. And don't sit around and worry about everybody else's burden. Because the more that we are sitting here comparing ourselves to others, the more crippling it becomes to our lives. All right, Galatians 6.6. 6. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Um, this is Paul's caveat that he wants to get paid, okay? Basically what Paul is saying here, and I think it's real simple, is he's like, now, I've said don't compare yourself. That being said, if there's someone who you're like, wow, he is so mature and he is teaching me so much in the faith, honor that, right? Just because we're not comparing does not mean that we can't honor our mentors, and so, and Paul, I'm sure, does have funding issues that are going on with his ministry. I'm confident from his letters that that is a small piece of this as well. He has yelled at them for five chapters, and he's like, but don't forget, if you want to support me, that would be fine. Okay, because he's, uh, he's got that issue going on, right? Galatians uh, 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Um, this is the closest that Christians get to karma, okay? Uh, generally in Christianity, we believe in forgiveness, we feel in grace. You don't always get what you deserve. But there is a sense, and this is in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament, that Whatever you put your life into, you're going to get that back to some degree, right? If you plant apples, you're not going to get orange trees. You're going to get apple trees. And this is just a basic logic of life. So Paul says when you sow the things of the Spirit, you reap righteousness. And when you sow the things of the flesh, you get destruction. Don't be, excuse me, don't be surprised by this. Don't be offended when it happens. Because we all know that that's the way the world works. Um, this is how things operate. Last week, we kind of used this metaphor of, of food, right? That when you're living in the spirit, you get an appetite 
for healthy spiritual food. And when you're living in the flesh, you get an appetite for bad food. And once you get in that spirit mood where you're used to good food, that, you know, greasy, nasty sin burger just doesn't taste good anymore. Just makes your stomach sick. And Paul is saying something very similar here. When you live a righteous lifestyle, it's going to reap righteous things. We all know that we feel better when we eat well and we exercise, right? Most of us have learned that anyways. But yeah, we're really bad about not doing it, right? Like we're just stubborn that way. I'm amazed how many times I get better about diet and exercise and I'm like, man, I've got so much more energy. I'm feeling good about things. And then, you know, you drive by and there's like, you know, nacho fries on the sign. And you're like, ooh, nacho fries. You know, like this is the way we are. And Paul says, just don't forget that, like, you're not going to change the moral physics of the universe. If you spend your time trying to do good stuff, good stuff's going to happen. And if you spend your life trying to do bad stuff, bad stuff's going to happen. That is the simplest, most obvious lesson in the world. But Paul is reminding them of it because we forget it all the time. Verse 9, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Paul is smart. He realizes you're going to get tired, okay? He just told him if you do good things, good things are going to happen. If you do bad things, bad things are going to happen. And immediately in his head, he knows the response is going to be, well, I've been doing good stuff for a long time and nothing good happens to me. And so his first response is, don't get tired of this. Don't get exhausted. Don't stop. Sometimes the fruit is just down the way. I saw a motivational poster last week. It was kind of cool. It was two guys in a mine going towards a diamond. And there was a guy who was inches away from the diamond, and he was giving up and walking away. And there was a guy feet away from the diamond that was chipping away at it. And the question was, which one of those guys is going to get there first? And it's the guy who keeps chipping, right? Because the guy who's walking away is not going to get there. And so Paul is saying sometimes it doesn't come quick. It doesn't come easy. But you got to keep doing good. Um, there's also one really interesting phrase here that I think is helpful for us. Uh, he says, especially do good to the family of believers. Um, we sometimes get this idea in church that it would be bad to prioritize our friends and family at church. And... That's not what Paul says. He says, in the end, you want to be good to everyone, but it's okay to give priority to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're in a family together, and it's not a problem to, to put them first. You know, I think if we're in a situation where we have X amount of dollars left to help people with rent, and we get requests on the same day from a church member and a non-church member that need help, we'll probably try to help both, but we might weight it a little more to the church member because that's what part of being a family is, right? In the same way that if your next-door neighbor and your sister called you needing help, you'd probably help your sister a little bit more or a little bit first, unless you really don't like her. But generally, we'd help our sister first, right? Paul says that's the way the church family works too. And it's okay to help the church a little more or first because that is, that's your family. That's how you take care of each other. It's also important in their society. Remember, many of these Christians are being left out of the society at large because of their faith. And so Paul is saying, make sure you take care of each other. Because if you can't, if, if a Christian can't get support from his church family, he's in big trouble. 
That should be the very first people that would help him. Verse 12, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. All right, this gets a little less practical, I think, for us, but I think it's, there's something really true here. Um, a lot of times when somebody comes to you with a theological issue, the truth of the matter is there is a personal issue behind the curtain. They are trying to talk to you about Bible stuff and theology stuff because they don't want to deal with the personal stuff. Right? So the way I always put this is I imagine a college student that goes, well, I can't become a Christian because I'm concerned about the Crusades and the history of violence in the Christian church. You go, oh, yeah. So the fact that we tell you that you should stop doing drugs that's not, has nothing to do with it, right? Because this is often what happens. Somebody's got a personal deal, and they put up this big facade about, oh, I don't know about the historicity of the cross. Yeah, is it that, or is it that we're going to talk to you about your relationship with women and how you're treating them? Hey, hey, don't get personal, right? Paul says this circumcision thing, he goes, let's be real honest. The only reason you guys are fussing about circumcision isn't because of what you think about the law of Moses. It's not about somebody's salvation. It's because you feel like a hot shot when you can convince somebody else to be circumcised. You're walking around all puffed up like, I got that guy to do something that extreme, right? And you feel great about yourselves. And Paul's like, this is terrible. This is arrogant. Your pride is the thing that's fueling all of this. Stop coming to me with scripture and theology and let's talk about your heart and why you feel the need to control other people all the time. Because that's what's really behind this. That's really the, thi- the guy pulling all the strings behind the curtain is your pride. And you know what? I promise you, if you talk to people that have different issues in their life, you will find that this is true so often. There is often some personal issue that is deep down behind why they complain about other surfacey stuff. Because nobody is going to say, I'm not a Christian because the pastor really mistreated me when I was eight, right? Sometimes they do, but not often is that the way they open. Usually instead it's because I don't like the hierarchy of the, you know, like it's just something else. And Paul says here, this circumcision issue is your pride. Verse 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor circumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. Paul says, the only thing that I'm going to boast in is the cross. The only thing that matters. The only thing that makes me like, yes, this is me. This is my identity is the cross. And I think Paul talks about the cross because, again, it's that complete and total sacrifice. That giving of oneself. He says that is what matters. He says the circumcision stuff, and remember, let's not underplay this circumcision is in the law of Moses and commanded of all of God's people, all of God's men, right? 
So, but Paul here is saying, yeah, that thing that God put into the law, that thing was a big deal in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, it doesn't mean a thing because the cross is the only thing that matters. And he says, when you do that, just as Jesus gave himself fully to you, what he gives you back is a full transformation, a new creation. Uh, as a kid, we always talked about how, um, I don't even forget, what, what turns into butterflies? Inchworms or something, right? Caterpillars, yeah, yeah. So the caterpillar is becoming into a butterfly, right? That still feels like science fiction a little bit, doesn't it? Like when you really think about it, that this little thing is going to crawl into this little plasticky looking cocoon and then pop out as a butterfly later on? It's kind of this amazing thing in nature, right? And Paul says, you're a totally new creation. When you start living by the Spirit and stop trying to control and self-manufacture your righteousness, you turn into something new. And so the circumcision stuff means nothing because the only thing that matters is your willingness to be transformed. And so all of these things, right, like this, this chapter, this sermon may feel a little scattershot, but that's because this chapter is a little scattershot, right? He's talking about all these little different issues. How do you deal with bad people? How do you have conflict? How do you not let envy take over your life? How do you make sure that you're um, not letting your pride become the, 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 the source of spiritual issues? How do you keep going when you're tired? How do you treat your mentors? All of these little things. Paul says these are things that when you become a new creation, you do different. Because you are just totally, completely changed. And so the question is, are you totally and completely changed? How many of these things pinch at you? Um, do you feel like your values have changed as you follow Jesus? Or do you still live in the flesh sometimes? Uh, do you worry a lot about what other people think about you, particularly your spirituality? Um, are you one who gently restores others? Or are you still going around screaming at them? Do you give credit to mentors who brought you to where you are? Where are you investing your time and your energy and your money? In, in these ways, are you being transformed? Now, here's a really tricky thing. Here's the way a lot of us will process this. Okay, there's a list of six things I have to do, and I need to go work harder at them, right? That would be very much against the point of Galatians, right? We just read a whole book about how we can't sit here and try to manufacture spiritual righteousness. So the image I can think of is this. Um, think of these things that God is doing in your life as a fire, okay? And ultimately, you can try to extinguish that fire or you can try to pour some lighter fluid on it, right? We can try to make it smaller or bigger. And I like this metaphor because if the fire is big enough, there's no amount of extinguishing that's going to stop it, right? And on the flip side, if the fire is not very big, it's kind of hard to get it going. There's part of this that you are not in control of. But you can decide in your life if you're going to create conditions that help this transformation to happen or that try to hinder it, right? A child should naturally learn how to speak and how to talk and how to go to the bathroom and all those things. But they can kind of stall the process out if they want to, right? And it's the same way with our spiritual growth. As God does 
things by moving in the spirit to create us into a new creation. We can do things to try to stunt that as much as possible. And we can do things that say, I'm going to put myself in a situation and environment where that can move. Uh, little things like, do we put ourselves in places where we allow the Spirit to speak? When we feel convicted by God, do we go with that conviction or do we try to fight it with all of our energy? And again, it's not all about you or your effort. But are you going to, to you know, pour fuel on it or are you going to try to put it out? And Paul says, in your life, try to do what you can to live in the Spirit. Because when you invest in those things, there will be fruit. And that fruit will be those things we talked about last week. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And there's never going to be any laws against living that way. All right. I am done. We always, um, I forgot to say this earlier. If you're visiting with us today, we do a question and answer period at the end of our sermons. So if you have any questions about today's sermon or the text or application or what some of those words in Come Thou Fount mean, I would be happy to answer any of those questions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's... So the real question, so the question is, so, you know, what, how do we take other scriptures like, you know, be, be good to your enemies because even the pagans are good to their friends, right? Um, the, to me, it's two separate questions. The first question is, who are we good to? And Jesus says, you're good to everybody. Because... If you're, um, if you're just good to people who are good to you, you know, the devil's that way. You should be good to everyone. But there, are, oh, there do come times where there's questions of priority or scarcity of goods. And we should not be ashamed to take care of fellow church people first. Um, it does not bring any honor to Christ for us to leave a brother and sister hungry while someone who we don't even know gets fed. Does that make sense? Why? Because they're your family. You just take care of your family first. I mean, if, you're, if, you, if there was a shortage of food and you had one piece of bread and you had a child at home, you'd feed your kid first, right? Yep, that's why we do it, because you take care of family first. Yeah, if we said, hey, as a church, we try to be generous to everyone. We try to help people's needs. If people need help with, you know, like with their rent or the electric bill, then, then you know, we'd love to help you. And they go, you've got people at your church who aren't eating, and you claim that you're generous? Right? Like, that's, that really looks bad. And so Paul says, yeah, it is fine to care. He usually, all he says is especially. My processing of that is that sometimes we have to prioritize. We, we would love to feed every person in the world. We don't have enough money to do so. And so, um, you know, just from like a church budget perspective, if we had $100 left to help and Seth needed something and a next-door neighbor needed something, we'd probably give 60 to Seth and 40 to them or, you know, take care of Seth first. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just little ways that we'd care, especially for the body of faith. Because these are your brothers and sisters. They're not just a friend or a person on the street. They're your family. And people naturally take care of their families. But yeah, I understand. It's a little bit of a pinch because we, we want to be, uh, you know, that's not to mean that we don't try to do what we can for everyone. But 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So the idea, the spirit is generally described as spirit and fire are common put together in the New Testament, uh, right? On the day of Pentecost, um, there's, there's flames of fire above their heads, right? Uh, as the spirit comes down on them. Exactly. Well, uh, encouraging the Holy Spirit to kind of engulf you, so to speak. Does that make sense? And the, spirit, the scriptures also talk about um, do not quench the spirit, this idea that the Holy Spirit is trying to um, power your engine, however you want to put it, the, the Spirit is moving in you like a fire, and then often we pour cold water on it to say, no, God, I don't want that change. I don't want that difference. I don't want that passion. I don't want that excitement. I would far rather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to try to put the fire out instead of let it grow. It is clear that this is not a Pentecostal church. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no setting yourselves on fire. Yeah, but um, there's a lot of songs about sort of stoking the fire of the spirit, so to speak. Yes, yeah, Seth. Well, uh, you were talking about the tendency to be your enemies and I know that this is kind of controversial in our cultural climate, but I don't think so. Let me put it this way. Jesus has people who are literally crucifying him and he responds to them in love. We cannot neuter that. Because we live in a culture right now that's like, yeah, but there's lines, right? Like, yeah, be good to your enemies unless they, they commit this sin and then, no, man, they don't deserve your grace. And it's just not Christianity. You know what I'm saying? Like, Jesus... Jesus is literally being spit upon and murdered. And he looks at those people and he goes, God, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. They, they don't know what's going on. And we're saying, like, they don't know what they're doing. They're killing you. They know that they're killing you. And Jesus is like, no, they're all caught up in something they don't even understand. Now, that's hard for us. When somebody is, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the sermon. When somebody's being blatantly racist, when somebody uh, is a rapist, right, like, we, we forgive those people? I think Jesus would say, they don't, they don't know what they're doing. They're so caught up in sin. And part of what Paul says here is it's really easy to do that. We've had this experience, I think, where we look at someone like, that person's so terrible. And then a circumstance comes up where we do something that we never thought we would have done or say something we never thought we would have said. And we're like, how did I do that? And Paul goes, that's the way sin works. All of us that are caught in it are doing stuff that we never thought we'd do because it messes with our lives. And the moment that we go, well, you did something that's too terrible to forgive, you better watch yourself because you might be doing the same thing tomorrow. You know? So there's a big difference between forgiveness and roles, right? So, for example, uh, we always do background checks for people that work in the nursery, right? There will be no child molesters who will ever be in the nursery. And frankly, there probably will be limits about their ability to even attend Sunday morning worship, I think. Uh, that sounds really harsh, but that's kind of the right way to take those things. It's not that we don't love them, and it's not that they're not forgiven. But um, if you have a friend who's an alcoholic, you don't go out to them with them to bars, right? That's not very kind to them. <laughs> and so, yeah, there are certain sins that we don't encourage. We don't give people bait to hope them to get back into. 
But the idea of like, you're so gross and nasty and gone that God couldn't even forgive you. That's, that is something our world, I know our world says it. I see it on my, my feed on a weekly basis, right? And I just, that's not, I don't think that's what the gospel says. Because then the question becomes, well, where is that line then? Like, what's the, um, well, this is not the best way to talk about it. What's the, what's the so messed up you can't be fixed line? And I, as, as someone starts drawing that line, I'm like, dear God, please let me be on the right side of it, right? Because I, I don't want to be one of those things that's so far gone that I don't have hope. Does that make sense? Yeah, Dad. And I think we see it sometimes. Um, the Amish do this really well, I think. There's classic examples. There was a, the, the shooting, right? A guy, yeah, there was a guy who shot uh, an, up an Amish church or something like that. And they all, I think, showed up to court and argued for him to not be given the death penalty because it's like, you killed us, but we, we don't want you to die, you know? And it's just, it's amazing. It's really beautiful. It's, it's hard, but, you know. I mean, the, I think the real pertinent example here would be Paul, right? The first time we meet Paul in the book of Acts, he is, uh, we can sanitize this, but I'm going to unsanitize it to remind us of what's going on. Paul is holding people's coats so that Stephen's brain matter doesn't end up on them as they chuck rocks at his head and kill him. That's Paul's job, is to be the coat man for the execution of the first Christian martyr. And God goes, that's my guy to the Gentiles. Right? It's bizarre. You're like, what? And you can see why Paul wasn't trusted early on in the church. But over time, he changed and he was different. And this was part of Paul's testimony. He's like, if I could be somebody that helped murder Christians, and now I am fighting for you with my life, God can do that transformation thing totally. Like, there is no amount of transformation he's not capable of. And it's, I, I, for me, it's inspiring. Like, it gives me hope, you know? Like, there is no way I can be so messed up that God can't fix it. And I think that's just powerful.